This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. When we talk about cognitive conflict of the ages, I think one of the biggest ways, I've mentioned this before, that the devil tries to slow our work down as Christians is to get us stuck on the things that we think. And as we get stuck on the things that we think, then it eventually affects how we act and how we feel. And I went over these, um, or I went over the um, ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy in the last session. And the ABCs, or the cognitive triangle, is this is the irrational thinking or beliefs and self-talk that perpetuates our negative emotions and behavior. So another way of saying that is how we think affects ultimately how we act and how we feel. And if we're not feeling good, and if we're not acting well, then what is that? what's the cause of that? Well, it's our thoughts. Our thoughts are directly causing that, not necessarily the activating events in our lives or the people. So I'm just going to go through this really quickly for the people that weren't here before. But our activating events or the activating events in our lives are those things that are we call triggers or stressors, the things that affect us negatively in our lives, and those can be internal our feelings and our thoughts, those things that come over us in the matter of a moment. I may not feel, I may feel like a burden or a heaviness come over me, and I don't know where it comes from. Some of us, you know, if we're Christian and we know the Bible, we know that often those come from the devil, those heaviness and that burden, that um, darkness, there is a heaviness from that. But we also have things that are external, and these are the ones that are more obvious. These are the things like the people in our lives, right? The situations in our lives that we have that we don't like. Maybe I didn't do well on a test, or I found out about a test, and then I have a bunch of other things that I also have to do, and so now my stressor or my activating event is trying to do all of these things at the same time. But also, these activating events, we know that they lead to beliefs. So what my activating events are, those, those affect what my beliefs are about the activating events. So as soon as this person comes into my life and they treat me a certain way, I have the choice to believe about them. An example is, I don't want to live. If they don't think I'm good enough, then no one will. I'm a worthless excuse for a human being. That sounds really awful, but it's something that a lot of people feel. If we get treated a certain way by certain people, if something happens a certain way, then we directly go to that either old or new belief, which is, I'm worthless, or I'm a sorry excuse for a human being. And we don't even share these things with people sometimes. We may put on smiles. I hear people all the time say, oh, no one would know this about me, that I have depression because I'm just happy all the time or I put on this face and stuff, but that's not how I really feel inside. And they, they're telling themselves really awful things. Can you imagine living that double life, you know, where you're smiling all the time, you're doing all this extra stuff, but on the inside you feel worthless and hopeless. But those things in our lives, we oft, the things that we believe are often are most likely related 
to the things that are happening to us, but those beliefs, we actually have a choice. We don't have to believe something just because it pops into our head. And we can choose to believe something else even when the activating event is a thought. So I can have a choice about what I think even though I didn't have the choice about the thought coming in my head originally. So our thoughts and our self-talk can be either irrational or rational, and they can be about myself, about others, about God, about our circumstances, and also about the future. But those beliefs directly relate to the consequences in our lives. So whatever I believe or whatever I tell myself is directly related to what's going to happen. So the activating event, I should do it this way because it's how you see. The activating event over here directly affects a belief, and that belief can be old or new. That belief can be something I've always felt about myself, about others, about my circumstances or my future, or it can affect a new belief. I can come up with something new. Oh, this happened, so that means this. And it can either be positive or negative, but I'm talking about the negative ones because those are the ones we have the problems with. So those consequences are twofold, though. There are emotions, how we feel, and also how we behave. And I'm just going over this for those of you who are in the last session. I'm going over this, over this again because, one, I forget sometimes that people are hearing this for the first time. I've, I've done this so many times. I could do it without looking at the screen. I don't know why I have to look at the screen all the time. <laughs> and two, because it's good to hear it over and over again, because the first time you heard it, you might have missed something, and the second time you hear it. This is why commercials replay over and over and over again in between shows, even the same one, and you're like, I'm sick of this commercial. I hope you're not watching TV, by the way, because you'll need this even more if you're watching TV. But our, our consequences also come out in the form of behaviors. And those behaviors are how I behaviorally respond to my own beliefs or my own self-talk or my own thoughts, just like my emotions or responses. But when my consequences are negative, I have to do something, and that is called dispute. And that's the D and the A, B, C, D, E. And the D means that I have to ask myself some questions, but I also have to reframe my original irrational belief because I don't want to be hopeless and I don't want to ultimately be helpless in any situation. I want to have a choice. I want to show that I have a choice. So I have to ask myself, is it true and is it helpful what I'm believing or what I'm thinking or what I'm telling myself? If it's not, what do I have to do? I have to reframe it or I have to replace the irrational belief with a rational one. And so I have an example here. I used that one in the last session. Oops, this goes really, this is really sensitive. Um, the E then is the ultimate outcome of reframing my irrational beliefs and putting a rational belief in its place. So when the irrational belief is replaced with a rational belief, then the consequences, which are the emotions and the behaviors, will be positive, for example, hopeful versus hopeless. But remember, I don't want anybody to leave here thinking that the activating event in their life, whether it's a person, whether it's a circumstance, whether it's their own initial thought or feeling, has absolute control over their lives. You actually have control over those things in your life. You have a choice. 
And that the effective change is the change that happens in your life. It's a lifestyle change because you will no longer be overcome by these things because you're not overcome by your own beliefs. You can actually change your belief. And I shared a lot of quotes and things from um, Mind, Character, and Personality in the last session. And I would encourage all of you to read that book, Mind, Character, and Personality, especially the chapter called Thought Control. That's a really good chapter, and it goes over a lot of this. But I'm going to share with you now 11 categories of irrational beliefs that we have, and you're going to be surprised. You're going to go, how does she know? This is totally me. You don't have to say that out loud, but I'd like you to spend some time writing down some of these things so that when we get to them, you can be aware of how you can change your own irrational thoughts and beliefs if you're having trouble in that area, especially with the categories. But I want you to remember, too, that these categories are, are fluid. Sometimes you'll have a belief or an irrational self-talk or thought that will fit into several categories. So just because it fits into one doesn't also mean it might not fit into another one. So you might have beliefs and thoughts and self-talk that fit into all of them. So the first one is, is called all or nothing thinking. And this is what happens when a person sees things in all, as only black and white. Do any of you tend to see things only as black and white or say, even tell people, I'm a black and white person? I have people tell me all, that all the time. I think they think they're bragging until they tell me that. And I'm like, well, that's not anything to really brag about. <laughs> It doesn't mean that there aren't some things that are black and white in life. There's sin and there's righteousness, right? Those can be black and white. But I'm talking about the non-religious things sometimes in our life, although that sounds like a contradiction in terms because everything we know about our lives can be a spiritual thing. But I'm talking about specific things where they don't necessarily need to be black and white. So here's an example of an irrational belief. When you see the little I in the capital B, that stands for irrational belief. And when you see the little R in the capital B, that stands for irrational belief. So I'm giving you both an example of a bad belief and the example of a good belief, or an example of an irrational belief versus a rational belief. And this is just one example. You can put a ton of examples in its place. But the irrational belief that I hear some people say, God must not care about me because he hasn't given me a boy or a girlfriend or a spouse. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever thought this. This is a personal thing. But some of us have thought this at some time or another. We've actually thought that God doesn't care about us specifically because we don't have this supposedly special person in our life. And this is just one example, like I mentioned. But do you see the problem of why this is an irrational belief? The problem with this is we're directly relating God's care with whether or not we get somebody romantic in our lives. I usually use the example, I tried to make it GYC specific for this one, but I usually use the example of my husband doesn't love me because he forgets to take out the trash. Because I've heard people say that. And I say, you know what, it's interesting, I've never met a woman who chose her husband solely based on his ability to take out the trash. <laughs> Have any of you done that? No, it is a nice quality. I had a roommate who took out the trash. It was lovely. But I don't know anybody who chooses their spouse based on that. And likewise, I don't know why we think 
God doesn't love us if there's something specific that we don't have in our life? What question can we ask ourselves when we have something like this all-or-nothing thinking? Well, the question that I ask is, are there things that show God does love me besides just this thing? Are there ways God shows he loves me besides just this? Absolutely, there are a myriad of ways that God shows that he loves me, and I don't have time to mention all of them. We'd be here all day. But I changed this, and this is just an example of how I would reframe this. And here's the rational belief. Just because I'm not in a relationship doesn't mean God doesn't answer my prayers or doesn't care about me. If I really thought about it, I know I'd have a long list of proof he does care about me. And maybe the fact that I'm still single is actually evidence that he cares about me. That's true, huh? Maybe God doesn't want me to get in a relationship and sabotage it right now because I don't know something that he wants to share with me before I get into that relationship. But so many times we're so narrow-focused and we see things only in black or white that we're not able to see other options. But remember, this is just one example of black and white thinking. I have another example, too. This is from um, one of Ellen White's writings. She says, Your only safety and happiness are in making Christ your constant counselor. You can be happy in him if you had not another friend in the wide world. Pretty interesting. Here we thought God doesn't love us if we don't have somebody in our lives. That's the black and white thinking. But then we find out, wait. I can be happy even if God's the only one in my life. And at some point, we might have to be in a circumstance where this is true. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in the Bible talks about how God sometimes takes away the things that um, we put our trust in so that we will have trust in the arm of God versus the arm of flesh. And Ellen White speaks of this, too. She says sometimes God takes us away from all of our earthly comforts so that we'll learn to trust in the arm of God. But that's just one example of all-or-nothing thinking. And I hope that maybe today, if, if you're open to a homework assignment, because those of us who do biblical cognitive behavioral therapy um, like to give homework, and the homework is to figure out what your own thoughts, your own beliefs are. And you probably have one that fits into all or nothing thinking. Find the one that you have where you tend to go to the black and the white on things. You associate one thing directly with something else rather than looking for the other options. But number two is overgeneralization. This is when, without enough evidence, we make a conclusion about all situations based on a single isolated event. Or in other words, something happens to me one or two times, usually even one time, and I will assume that any time in, my, in that situation, it's going to happen exactly the same way. Think about, you know, if in first grade, I didn't go to kindergarten, because a lot of kids didn't go to kindergarten when I was in, in first grade. And at least in my school, and I remember I did not have a very good time, or I, I had a hard time learning how to read. Words like enough really frustrated me. That does not go along with the way you're taught how to sound out letters. Enough, it should not be spelled E-N-O-U-G-H. 
And I had, I'm, I'm kind of a stubborn person. I like to think that's good in certain circumstances. But I was really stubborn. I'm like, why are they telling me how to read? And then they throw in a word like enough that goes against all of the rules they just taught me. But in that circumstance, if I had just given up because a couple words were really hard for me, I would not be able to read the screen today, right? If I had just given up. But sometimes, like say, you know, we don't do well on a test and we give up on every test after that because we didn't do well on the first one. And we just assume, well, I'm not going to be able to do well in this because I didn't do well in it the first time. So here's an example of an irrational belief. Every time I try to go door to door, I get rejected. That can be a belief that people have, especially if you're coal portering and stuff. But this doesn't happen, this usually happens like after the first day of even trying. <laughs> Is that a fair assumption to make? Every time I go door to door, I get rejected after the first day? No, I'm sure they didn't get rejected even every single time, and they haven't gone more than one day to see. So here's an example of a rational belief. I haven't even knocked on every door on this street, much less gone door to door for a whole month, so I can't say I always get rejected. And you might even add, are they really rejecting me? What did Samuel say before God when the Israelites wanted a king and God told them to go back to them, told him to go back to them and tell them all the things that they would, you know, eventually have to deal with because they wanted this king? And he goes back and he tells them and they say, we still want a king, we don't care if our daughters are his concubines and our sons are in his armies and die in battle. And so he comes back and he goes, God, they've rejected me. And what does God say? No, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. When I, the first time I went call portering, I just want to tell this story because it's funny. Um, I knew what to believe at that point. Actually, the first time I went door to door was GYC 2008. Um, my, the stranger that I met that we went door to door, we actually got quite a few responses, but we did get rejected several times. And you know the funny thing, my response, really? When they would say, no, we don't want anything. Really? And my friend was like, why do you say that? And I'm like, because I can't believe they don't want anything. <laughs> but it wasn't about me. It was, who was I representing? God. And I was more worried for him, I realized, than even myself. I'm like, what? Are you sure? <laughs> My friend was laughing at me. Life is under no obligation to give us what we expect. Sometimes we think something bad's going to happen over and over again, and it actually doesn't even turn out as bad as we thought it would. The kids in the group home, I mentioned in the last group that I used to work in a group home. I worked at the group in the group home for seven years, and these were all criminals. So they were all on probation, and the courts were giving them a, a second chance to go back after they did a 9 to 12-month program. And they used to tell me, this was their logic, you know, miss, always expect the worst, then you're never disappointed. I was like, but you're always disappointed then, right? You're absolutely always disappointed. If you expect the best, then you're going to find the best even in what someone else might think is a disappointment. But this is what happens when we overgeneralize. 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, threw down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Who said this? Elijah. Elijah. This was an overgeneralization. He thought that there were no other prophets because he had seen all these prophets get slain. And then only to find out after God speaks to him and he has to go back, oh, I guess I'm not the only one. Right? So sometimes we're not the only ones who overgeneralize. We have God's word to show us that people even before us have overgeneralized. And I was reading this morning in a devotional, too, that was um, talking about how if everybody in the Bible did things perfectly, we might be overcome by, you know, ourselves and how unworthy we were. But God was kind enough to even put people in the Bible that didn't do very well so we could, we could one, learn from them, and, two, not be totally discouraged when we didn't do all that we could do. Number three is negative filtering. And negative filtering is when we focus entirely on the negatives or choose to remember only the bad events in one's life. Do any of you tend to have a negative filter on your view of the world and yourself and others and your circumstances in the future? I used to. Most people don't realize this, but I used to suffer from depression and anxiety when I was younger. The beauty is, is that people don't recognize that. <laughs> That's the best part. But we can actually overcome this negative filtering. But here's an example. Remember how miserable growing up in our family was. Why is this an example of negative filtering? Well, because very likely everything wasn't miserable about growing up. Even some of the worst circumstances that I've heard people go through is not all bad. I actually had a woman tell me once that um, she had been very much abused growing up, and she told me, you know, Amanda, you should ask all of your clients if they had a God moment in their life, because I guarantee you every single one of them has. A moment where God showed up when he didn't have to, amidst all of the pain and all of the turmoil, where he proved that he was still there even through all of that. And I actually have a friend who, um, I can share this because she's already shared it in a sermon on Audioverse, how when she was growing up, she had a very tough life. And when we were talking, she was telling me how through that, through that um, experience that she thought that her life was all bad and that God hadn't shown up for her in her life and it was just all miserable, and in fact, the more that we talked, we came to find out that there were two specific ways that God showed up in her life. And when we found those two, we found a bunch of other ones too. But the two main ways God showed up is she, was, she grew up in a home that was very, very abusive, whether it was physically, emotionally, sexually, whatever, you name it, everything pretty much happened to her. And yet when she was younger, a woman showed up in her life who was a Sabbath school teacher, and she was so nice to her even as scared as she was as a little girl of people because of the way she'd been treated, that this woman was so nice to her, she told her one day, I wish you were my mom. She had to be a lovely woman that God sent to her for her to feel that way in this woman's presence, the way she treated her. And then later on in her life, she had a male teacher 
who was a wonderful example of a man to her, despite all of the examples that she had of men previous to this, or most that she'd had previous to this, and she even told him, I wish you were my dad. And now that sounds really tragic that this person didn't have somebody like that in their lives to raise them, but you know what? In the scheme of things, people make choices, and we can't change the choices that they make, but God showed up for her anyway and put two people in her life specifically to show what a woman and a man, a mother and a father should treat her like. And I believe God does that for all of us when we tend to have negative filtering in our own lives about all the negative things that happen. We're just often too negligent in looking for those things. And I believe this is the reason why I'm no longer depressed and anxious, because I've been able to do this. But here's an example of a rational belief. It wasn't easy growing up in our house, but I learned a lot about what I would like to be different in my family one day. And there were times we enjoyed each other's company, like the time we, and you can fill in the blank. In college, I had some friends who thought that I had a perfect life, and then I they teased me about having a perfect life because they were complaining about something that had happened to them, and they were really complaining. And I didn't want to say anything. I was actually kind of embarrassed to share my own story, so I didn't, I didn't um, share it with them. And then my friend kept teasing me afterwards, like, oh, you can't relate to us because nothing bad has ever happened to you. And so I felt, okay, maybe now I should tell her. And I wound up telling her you know, some things that I had been through, and she looked at me, and she's like, oh... I didn't realize. It was actually worse than what she was complaining about. And so sometimes we don't realize that even some of the happiest people around us have gone through really hard things, but they're choosing to see it in a different way. So don't hate on the people that aren't depressed just like you are, who aren't stressed out just like you are, anxious just like you are. Some of them have gone through some pretty hard times. And don't hate on the people that look like they're sad all the time. We don't know what they've been through either. It's important to have perspective in this. But we don't want to filter. There's a quote by William Shakespeare that says, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Now, obviously, there are good and bad things that happen, but sometimes we imagine things to be worse than they are, or we can imagine things to be great. Life is what we make it, and we shall find what we look for. If we look for sadness and trouble, if we are in a frame of mind to magnify little difficulties, we shall find plenty of them to engross our thoughts and our conversation. But if we look on the bright side of things, we shall find enough to make us cheerful and happy. If we give smiles, they will be returned to us. If we speak pleasant, cheerful words, they will be spoken to us again. Number four is disqualifying the positives. This is when we, this is like a sibling of negative filtering, but it's even worse than that. This is when you take something good and turn it into something bad because you so don't want to have anything good happen. So an example of this, I hope you don't do this. This is like, uh, we've heard, I hope nobody's name is Debbie in here, but um, have you heard the term Debbie Downer? You know, in, in California, um, we, had to, we were going through a drought. And when it would rain, you know, sometimes people would say, oh, it's awful. But we needed the rain because we were in a drought. Or how about when it's sunny? Yeah, but we need the rain. 
You know, you can never be happy with whatever way it is. It's always bad no matter what. And that's what disqualifying the positive is, is when we're merely looking for the worst thing, even no matter what it is. But we do this sometimes, and this is like the advanced and even worst version of negative filtering when we disqualify the positives. But here's an example of an irrational belief. When someone congratulates you on being a spiritual inspiration for them and you think to yourself or even say it out loud, they already knew about God, I only told them about. That's disqualifying a positive because a rational belief would be God places a high value on any soul that submits to him and praise God for this soul who is able to see Christ living through me. Sometimes we don't feel worthy of the calling but actually God can use each one of us, and we actually disqualify the positives in us because we're always looking at the negative things. William James says your focus becomes your experience. If you're always focused on the negative, you're only going to see the negative. Zacharias well knew how to Abraham in his old age a child was given because he believed him faithful who had promised, but for a moment... The aged priest turns his thought to the weakness of humanity. Do you know where this comes from? This is right before he lost his voice. This was the reason he lost his voice. He knew God's promise to be true, and yet he disbelieved it even despite all of the promises. So often we do that too. We actually disqualify all the good God's done in our life because maybe one thing isn't going the way we want it to. And how unfortunate is it for us when we live in a place like that, of always disqualifying the positive things? And that's from Desire of Ages, page 98. The number five is jumping to conclusions. And this is when we do one of two things. We're either mind reading, and that's when you assume a person's agenda or thoughts without proof. The sad thing about this is families tend to do this to each other a lot. We think we know what our sibling or our parents or our children or our spouse even is thinking or why they're doing something because we know them so well, quote unquote. But actually, we might be quite wrong. Technically, I think they've found out that most people, even when you know them very well, you're only about 25% right if you think you know what they're thinking. Fortune telling is the other part of jumping to conclusions, and that's when we predict something will happen or won't happen without proof. So we think we know what's going to happen even though we don't have any proof. Irrational belief, I'll probably make a fool of myself, so why even try? Is that mind reading or fortune telling? Fortune telling, yeah, that's fortune telling because we think we know, but we don't know. Well, what happens when we think we know something and we're fo so focused on that? If I think I'm going to get up here and fail, what am I likely to do? Fail, because where is my mind? Remember, whatever we think on, What's the effects of that? How I feel and how I behave. If I think I'm going to trip getting up onto stage, what am I likely to do? Trip, because my thoughts are what are... Your thoughts become your actions and become a reality, right? So whatever I'm thinking about, my actions are actually going to come out of that. So the rational belief, there's a chance I will fail, but I'll never succeed if I don't try, and there's a good chance I will succeed. Is there a good chance I'll succeed? 
well, there's a much better chance I'll succeed if I'm thinking about succeeding, right? My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. Sometimes we fortune tell the worst things and it doesn't actually happen. The hosts of Israel lacking discipline and self-control became violent and unreasonable. Their wailings and lamentations were loud and deep. The wonderful pillar of cloud had been followed as the signal of God to go forward. But now had it not led them on the wrong side of the mountain into an impassageway, the angel of God appeared to their deluded minds as the harbinger of disaster. If we think something's going to be a certain way, what does it wind up? Usually the way we think it's going to be. And yet, this tells us that that's how they saw this cloud. Is that what that cloud was there for? Absolutely not. It was a promise to them that they would be taken care of. And yet, you know, this is one of the sad things, is that often when we let our imaginations go with just whatever we think or whatever we feel, we actually become delusional. We can't be rationalized. Or we can't, we can't rationalize things, or we can't reason things out normally. And people try to tell us, no, that's not how things are, and we won't listen to them, we won't believe them. And that's a sign of delusional disorder, is when I'm doing something, even when all this evidence is saying otherwise. And I believe that's one of the things the Israelites were dealing with as they let their imaginations go wild and whatever thought they were experiencing at the time, whatever thing the devil was trying to get them to believe, they went with and then they became delusional. Their delusion went a lot deeper later on in the story too, right? They were worshiping a calf while Moses was up on the mountain? Really? Now, I'm not judging them because I don't know what I would have done in that situation. We need to be careful about saying what we would do. I would hope I wouldn't do that. But that's what delusional thinking can do. Irrational thinking can lead to delusions. Number six is magnification and minimization. This is when we make a mountain out of a molehill or make a molehill out of a mountain. This is kind of a funny one that I threw in there. This is an example of an irrational belief. So I went over my credit card limit this month. I needed a new outfit. I'm tired of my old clothes, and it's not like other people don't have debt. Is this an example of magnification or minimization? Yeah, actually, it could be an example of both. It could be a magnification of need and a minimization of debt. (laughs) But the rational belief, sure, I'd like new clothes, but liking isn't the same as needing and I can wait. We have, you've heard the joke, you know, first world problems. One of the biggest first world problems we have is we use the word need in place of want. Now, I'm not going to tell you what you don't need and what you don't, what you do need, but it's important to be honest with yourself. Don't be irrational and don't have stinking thinking when it comes to what you need or what you want. Be realistic. Be master of your petty annoyances and conserve your energies for the big worthwhile things. It isn't the mountain ahead that wears you out, it's the grain of sand in your shoe. That's an example of magnification. Sometimes we make such a big deal out of something small. Choose your battles. Oops. In there, Adam and Eve's efforts to reach p- 
positions for which he had not fitted them, many are leaving vacant the place where they might be a blessing. This is an example of sometimes we magnify our abilities and minimize the place that we're in right now. I believe this is one of the reasons why our society is having such a problem in many ways, is because we're not willing to be happy with the place God's given us wherever we might be. I've been in jobs where I thought, God, please take me out of this job. And I'm going to actually share that, that story with you on Sabbath. But I wanted to be out of that job so badly because it was so painful. And I thought I could surely do something better somewhere else. And I came to find that I had to be submissive to God and say, God, you know, if you want me here, if there's something that I need to learn here, I'm willing to stay in this position. Don't just, just, don't just let me out of this position because I don't like how it feels, but if I need to learn something from this, then I'll stay. And that's not something we often want to do. We're not willing to do things. I've been a janitor. I'm proud of it. And I didn't hate the job because I didn't think about it in terms of that. I liked seeing the dormitory that I cleaned look good afterwards. And there is a beautiful position that each of us have. We need janitors. We need all sorts of people in all sorts of positions, and you can be a beautiful example of God in that position. Don't think that you're too big for that position, or even too small for a position, too. If God wants you there, stay there until he moves you to a different one. Emotional reasoning, this is probably one of the biggest ones that I face with my clients. And this is presuming how you feel is a true indicator of how things are. Irrational belief, I'm crying and I'm scared, so I guess I should just forget about sharing my testimony. Or I don't feel like I have a good testimony, so I shouldn't share it. This is what keeps us from doing a lot of these things that God wants us to do. A rational belief, if I had to do this on my own, sure, it would be scary, but God has given me a testimony and he promises to speak a word in season. Fear is when ten guys with knives are after you. Anxiety is when you're safe at home thinking they might come. Sometimes we make a big deal out of things merely because we feel it. Feelings are not a good indicator. But shall we wait till we feel that we are cleansed? No. Christ has promised that if we confess our sins, you can say it with me, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are not to wait for wonderful emotions before you believe that God has heard you. Feeling is not to be your criterion. We are specifically counseled not to wait for our feelings to tell us to do something or not do something. We're supposed to go by what is true. And if God's calling us to do something, don't wait until you feel this. This is actually one of the, um, this is something I'm learning more and more, that um, I hear a lot of people say that um, I'm praying or I'm waiting for God to make it clear to me that I'm supposed to do this or I'm waiting for you know, inspiration to do something or whatever or God to give me the power to do something. And what I'm actually hearing them say is I'm waiting for a feeling to do it. 
I believe in a lot of cases, God's already given us the power to do it. We're just waiting for a feeling. But a feeling is not what we should be waiting for. That's like saying, you know what? God's given me the ability to breathe, but I'm waiting until I feel like it. Well, the power to breathe is already instilled in my body. The power for my heart to beat has already been instilled in my body. I don't wait to feel it. It just does. And so often we're waiting for God to make us feel something before we do something rather than just being obedient to what he's asked us to do clearly. And I think this is one of the reasons we're not doing more is because we're waiting for our feelings and the devil keeps, you know, whispering in our ear, oh, well, you don't have to do it because you don't feel like it yet. God will tell you. He'll make you feel it. God doesn't want us to wait till we feel it. If he says do it, just do it. Don't wait, because the more you wait, then you start questioning it. But the waiting is actually equivalent to the doubt that you have about God. The longer you wait, it means the more doubt you have that if he's actually going to do that. So if he tells you to do something, and I don't mean you hear an audible voice, but just reading in his word. If he says something is wrong, don't do it. If he says it's right, do it. Don't wait to feel that impression of it. There's one of my favorite stories is, um, have you heard the story of Corrie Ten Boom? She talks about forgiveness. And she's speaking on forgiveness at this um, place, a church or something like that. And this man comes up to her afterwards and says, do you really believe what you said about forgiveness? And she says, of course I do. And he says, because I'm the man who hurt your sister in the concentration camp. And I'd like your forgiveness. And she specifically says, I did not feel like giving him my forgiveness. But what did she do anyway? She reached out her hand. And as she reached out her hand, what did God do? He imbued that feeling through her to be able to continue to hold it out to him and offer him forgiveness. But she didn't get the feeling first. The feeling came after she did the behavior. And so often... The reason we're so deficient in positive feelings is because we're deficient in positive behaviors. And we're not doing the things God's asked us to do, so we're never going to feel like we're good enough or worthy enough or all of these other things that we so badly want to feel. It's because we're not just being obedient to him. Shoulding. This is not a grammatical or spelling error. This is when we expect ourselves and especially others to conform to a certain set of rules irrespective of the circumstances. These are the people, whether it's you or someone else, who likes to micromanage and has to have things be such a perf- in such a way, perfect way. Irrational belief, I should have never left the house this morning, then I wouldn't have embarrassed myself like that. Show of hands, who here has never embarrassed themselves? Okay, see, you don't even have to worry about it. Everybody's been embarrassed. And that's why I put the rational belief, embarrassment is a normal part of life. Everyone has been embarrassed at some point. But sometimes we think things have to be a certain way, and if they're not, the end of the world. It should be this way. It must be this way. I can't do it any other way. But we realize, hey, sometimes these things happen. Do you know there are people who make their living off of embarrassing themselves? Yeah, there are people who make their living out of this. So embarrassment is not the worst thing. And things don't always have to go the right way. Does anybody know about cornflakes? Somebody might have gotten fired over that. But we have cornflakes now because somebody made an accident. 
right? It didn't go the way it was supposed to. I don't remember what it was originally supposed to be, but someone left it out or something overnight and it cracked or something and became all these little flakes. I think it was supposed to be like crackers or something and left it out and became flakes. And now we have a billion dollar industry because of somebody's mistake. It didn't go the way they wanted it to. Post-it notes are also from that. It's supposed to be a good working glue. Didn't work so well, but it's perfect if you want to put a piece of paper on another piece of paper and pull it off later, right? Somebody else is making a lot of money off of people's mistakes. White out. <laughs> if, if you make mistakes, find an invention where you can make lots of money off of it. But flexibility is the hallmark of good mental health. Do you tell God sometimes what you want and how it should be? It should be this way. It has to be this way. And then maybe God reminds you later, well, maybe that's not the best way. Satan, in his pride and arrogance, had declared himself to be the rightful and permanent ruler of the world, the possessor of all its riches and glory, claiming homage of all who lived in it, as if he had created the world and all things that were therein. He believed that things should be a certain way, right? Satan had this belief that things should be a certain way, and when they weren't, was he willing to listen to God? Absolutely not, and the rest of the world has been affected because of what he thought should be a certain way. Labeling. This is making an isolated or first-time offense to be indicative of a character trait. This is when we call people names or think we, when we judge people, or we even label ourselves sometimes. Irrational belief, that jerk, he didn't even look before he turned. Have any of you ever been driving along and then you go to merge into another lane and you realize, wow, I missed seeing that person and I almost just hit them before you swerve back into your own lane? Nobody's ever done that? <laughs> no, I've done that before. You know what it reminded me? I was very convicted when that happened. I realized, you know all those times where you get upset with the other drivers when they almost cut you off? Maybe they're just like me and they're missing something or their mind's focused on something else or they're human. Humans make mistakes. But sometimes we label people not realizing that would we hold ourselves up to the, that same standard? Or maybe that standard's impossibly high to reach but we label people. Another time we do that is when we look at people who aren't making the choices we would think they should make, and we get upset with them. Ministry of Healing has a lot to say about that when we encounter people who are like, why aren't they making these choices? Why aren't they doing this? They're so this or they're so that. And we realize had we been in that same situation, we might be doing the same thing ourselves. And so, rational belief, that wasn't a smart move. I wonder if he saw me. People are not disturbed by things, but by the view they take of them. That's a cognitive behavioral therapy statement for sure. Satan may come to you with the cruel suggestion, yours is a hopeless case. You are irredeemable, but there is a hope for you in Christ. This is when we tend to label ourselves as worthless or unworthy or other negative labels we put on ourselves. 
Number 10, this is the second to last one, is blame. And this is when we hold ourselves or another responsible for something I or the other has no control over. Sometimes we expect people to do things. This is like when parents get upset with their children. They're like three years old and they spill something. And they blame them for that. I've seen couples get divorced because a child in the family has come down with an illness and they both start blaming each other that their kid is sick or that they're in the hospital every week and they want so badly to blame someone else. Or sometimes we even blame ourselves for things that we can't control. See, that's what happens when you trust people might be an irrational belief. I've replaced that with, she had no idea she was going to be stuck in traffic. The world is not trying to gang up on me just to upset me. The best years of your life are the ones in which you decide your problems are your own. You do not blame them on your mother, the ecology, or the president. You realize that you control your own destiny. And now that's a secular view of this, but we do control a lot more than we realize we do. Our beliefs actually bring about behaviors, and those behaviors bring out habits, right? And if we're in a difficult situation, sometimes it's because we're having irrational thoughts, and this is one example of those. This is, I didn't intend on putting this quote in here, but when I found this, I was shocked, and I thought maybe some parents and even some kids could benefit from this quote, and it has to do with blame. There are wealthy men, and I added women, who expect their children to be what they were in their youth and blame the depravity of the age if they are not. Do you hear this? I hear this all the time. Fathers and mothers labor to place their children in a position of wealth rather than where they themselves began. This is a common mistake. Had children today to learn in the same school in which their fathers learned, and in another place she talked about the poverty, diligence, and perseverance, they would become as useful as they. How often do I hear parents go, oh, my kids, how come they're acting this way? They should know better. I didn't grow up this way. I didn't do these things. But they forget that the reason they don't do those things is because they struggle to get there. And sometimes God wants us to struggle because it keeps us from sin. It grows us. It teaches us. And yet we want our kids to do the same thing. But I hear a lot of parents today blame their kids, but oh, well, I don't want my kid to work. I want them to focus solely on their education. Now, education is not a bad thing, but work isn't a bad thing either. It's actually quite important. How will my kid ever learn work ethic if they don't ever work? And so sometimes when we blame others, we realize maybe it's something that I'm doing that I need to be more accountable to. And so this is one of the reasons I put it in there. I wasn't planning on it because it kind of diverges from what I was originally intending to show you, but this was a powerful statement that I thought would be helpful. And the last one is self-worth. This is when we judge our value to be based on the external, what others think of us, or how we perform. The irrational belief, I'm not as athletic, tall, pretty, accomplished as him or her, so no one will ever love me. And you can think of your own variation of this statement. But I put irrational belief in its 
place. I may not have some of the things society values in a person, but the God of the universe says I'm the apple of his eye. So that's enough for me. And that's from Psalm 17, verse 8. But there, it, that actually shows up in the Bible three times. Is the apple of his eye, is that a term of endearment? Absolutely. Do you think God cares about us when he uses those terms of endearment in the Bible? Absolutely. We are valuable. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent, Eleanor Roosevelt said. Sometimes we attack ourselves. And then I added this quote from Desire of Ages, page 668, and this is probably one of my favorite quotes. It says, The Lord is disappointed when his people place a low estimate upon themselves. He desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price he has placed upon them. You cannot put a price tag on yourself unless it matches exactly the one that Christ did. Do you know that? You can't undervalue yourself. You can't mark yourself down. You're the original price. Do not mark yourself down. You're not on clearance. God wanted them, else he would not have sent his son on such an expensive errand to redeem them. You don't get to choose your self-worth. God gets to choose that, and he's already chosen that. And Christ is the example of that. I mentioned work ethic. How do you get work ethic? You actually have to work. That's the simple answer. You don't get work ethic if you don't work, right? Willpower. How do you get willpower? You have to exercise your will. It's the only way you'll ever build your willpower. God has already given us the will. We don't have to wait till we feel it. We just have to exercise it. And when you do that, unseen agencies at work are at work, both evil and good, to take the control of the mind. They act with unseen yet effectual power. While we should be keenly alive to our exposure to these assaults of unseen and invisible foes, we are to be sure that they cannot harm us without gaining our consent. Each one of you has control over your own beliefs, thoughts, and self-talk. Please exercise that control. Thank you. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.